Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and I am so grateful that we've got this time together. I love our time in the afternoons. I hope you listen to Susie Larson. I hope you listen to Carmen in the morning and all the other great shows on Faith Radio. But I always really, really hope you listen to Afternoons with me from 4 to 6 Central Time, because tonight I've got a lovely show for you with Dr. Bob Moeller, and Dr. Peter Kapsner is joining as well, because uh, Bob and Peter seem to like talking to each other. So I've organized this so everybody can be on the line at once. So I'm excited to talk about our topic today, which is not a happy topic, but we're going to dig into it and find out what we can learn. We're going to talk today about a marriage and why is it on the decline in our culture today? That's the topic. Uh, Peter, Bob, welcome. Thanks, Bill. Yeah. yeah. All right. It's not a, not a necessarily happy topic, but I know we will handle this, uh, with uh, compassion and, and love and tr- biblical truth. Well, I hope so. And, and let me just begin by saying in our topic, uh, the implication is not that everyone should be married. Um, that, you know, that that's uh, God calls some people uh, like the Apostle Paul and others to a life of singleness. And that's an honorable and holy calling. Uh, what, Peter and I want to discuss today, though, is the overall trend of our society rejecting marriage as an institution, opting out of it in uh, huge numbers and uh, growing in that direction, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And uh, Bob uh, and his wife, Cheryl, have a a ministry. uh, You can go to fourkeepsministries.com to learn more about it. They've written a book called Six Hearts of Intimacy enjoying deeper love and passion in marriage. And, of course, Peter is a uh, professor here at the University of Northwestern, and he deals with students all the time asking these kind of questions. So it seemed like a perfect fit for all of us to be on the on the uh, call today. So thank you so much for for uh, saying yes. And let's, let's start with uh, Peter. Do you have something you wanted to say to get things started? Yeah, no, I, I think it is an incredibly relevant topic. I've seen a decline in... Um... It, I, don't, I don't want to say it's a decline in the interest of marriage. Maybe it's better to say among younger people, there's a rise in the fear of getting married. And, and I think that's probably for a variety of reasons. But, Bob, in the, in the sexuality class that I teach, we have pretty extensive topics around divorce and remarriage. We have it around pre-sexuality and marriage. Just there, it, there's a lot of factors that go into this. And so maybe just give us a, an overview about the general decline in interest and, and even the practice of marriage and what you're seeing there. Well, what we're seeing is a pattern that in many ways is following what we've been seeing happening in Europe for decades, which was the institution of marriage. The number or percentage of people getting married has been steadily falling. And I believe I'm correct that I read in Norway, for example, the marriage rate is somewhere now around 20 percent. That would be one out of five. Here in the United States, for the first time in our history, more people are single 
than married. We have a larger single population than there is married. And the percentage of adults that are married after age 20 or, or 30 um, has declined by almost a third in the last, I would say, 15 years or so. That's, that's about 33%, which, you know, you really, that is, that is significant. Um, that is going to change the culture. That's going to have an impact. But the number of those individuals that are not choosing to get married um, after, say, 25 or 30 has risen dramatically. Uh, there's, there's, I think, a number of reasons to explain it, and that's part of what we'd like to do on this program. Yeah, that's a big question is what is happening? And why, why is marriage on the decline in this generation? Well, let me just say that um, I think the overall, if you, if you were to pick a, a reason that is sort of an umbrella reason, I believe it's the decline of faith in our Judeo-Christian values, hmm. the overall secularization of our society, that um, our traditional Judeo-Christian values held that marriage is a sacred institution, and it is the only stable um, environment, marriage, in which to raise children. And it is a, a basic building block of a society. Again, that doesn't say that everyone has to be married, but that is the norm. Uh, in the past, about 90% of the American population was married. Um, or, or once they reached adulthood, eventually did marry. And that's just not the case. But I think as uh, there was another poll that I read recently that 30-some percent, around 30%, maybe 33% of uh, millennials, those born after around the year 2000, um, report no religious faith at all. They, they report themselves as secular. Now, that's almost a third of that generation, and the generation behind the numbers, I believe, are the same. Well, what, what's happening is we just don't believe as a society increasingly in the values that have been taught in the scriptures, in the Old and New Testament. Um, and as a result, one of the casualties of this rejection of God, this rejection of biblical truth to inform our values and our society, is that marriage is taking a big hit. And we saw that in Europe as they became increasingly secular. I, I think that's happening here. So that's my overall impression. As we've lost faith as a society increasingly in the God of the Bible, in, in the scriptures as a way of ordering our life of the values, um, it was only inevitable that eventually marriage would suffer as well. Yeah, uh, and when you describe the idea that marriage is supposed to be a place and, and the only stable place uh, for the raising of children, and historically, um, sexual union really had as part of its reason or rationale, uh, especially in the Catholic Church for all of these generations, but I think in the Protestant Church as well, is that it there was a procreation dimension of it. And so is, is part of what happened here is that as soon as we move from the, the kind of sexual union that was only for marriage, but it just was permissible anywhere. And and I know there's a lot of reasons why that happened, but as soon as it just became more about somebody's decision uh, for pleasure or they wanted to just have a relationship, and, and it really became a self-focused pursuit that it really also caused quite a bit of a decline in marriage. Yeah, that's true. That would be the second reason uh, would be the sexual revolution. 
of the late 1950s and, and 60s and certainly into the 70s. Now, this is the first time our society said uh, it, is, it is permissible, it is even encouraged in some ways to be sexually active outside of marriage. Um, the sexual revolution destigmatized, for example, uh, sexual activity outside of marriage, which then led to the phenomenon we're seeing today of people living together. Um, in my parents' generation, would have been the, the World War II generation, um, there was a certain stigmata to living together outside of marriage. They called it shacking up and, you know, other things like that. And it was generally viewed culturally as the wrong thing to do. Well, today that is almost entirely reversed, where uh, one study that was done at the University of Chicago, two-thirds of all couples live together before they get married, if they get married at all. And uh, rather than being stigmatized, that is today celebrated. And, um, you know, my wife has overheard conversations where uh, a woman will say, um, oh, I'm so thrilled he invited me to move in with him. You know, it's been what I've been waiting for and hoping would happen. I'm just, and everybody congratulates her. Um, and, you know, vice versa, even though there's no commitment, there's no covenant, and the statistics say probably they will not stay together. Yet today that is considered um, the norm rather than the exception. Yeah, Bob, I think we could probably have an extended conversation about the importance of vows for a relationship. But maybe before we go there, uh, I certainly can say that it was maybe five or six years ago that my students who grew up in Christian households in in just standard conservative kinds of churches, typically speaking, they began to tell me that even their parents were encouraging them to test out the relationship first before you make that kind of commitment to another person. And part of what we've talked about is that the kind of relationship you experience outside of the vows of I will never leave you nor forsake you just isn't the same as that which is within the vows. And so we're really setting up these young people for a tremendous amount of confusion. And, and part of why their relationships tend to very much struggle after they decide to get married. Well, that's true. You know, there is uh, the, the word husband and the word boyfriend um, carry completely different connotations. I mean, even if you're living with your boyfriend, it's not your husband. And it is not the same as being a husband, and it's not the same as being a wife. It is an entirely uh, different paradigm than when you are a committed husband and wife until, you know, death do us part. And I think speaking to anybody and everyone today out there that may be married, you know that life will test your vows. You know it won't be long at all until, is this for better or for worse? Is this in sickness and in health? Is this for richer and poor? Is this till death do we part? You know, I'm not sure who wrote those. I mean, those vows are in the Book of Common Prayer, the you know, Episcopalian Church. Whoever wrote them understood life mm-hmm. and understood that your commitment will be tested. Uh, no matter, you know, how virtuous you are, how committed you are, whatever, you will be tested by the circumstances in life. And I'm concerned uh, for people that do not have um, that type of level of commitment and covenant that only marriage can provide. 
Um, it is mar- living together is not practice marriage. It's not spring training. <laughs> it's, it's not, you know, seeing how, how all this works out, if you like it, with a money-back guarantee. You will never know marriage and what it means until you're married. Dr. Bob Muller is my guest, and we're talking about the decline of marriage, uh, but there's going to always be good news because we always talk that way. He's written a book with his wife, Cheryl, called The Six Hearts of Intimacy, Enjoy Deeper Love and Passion in Marriage. You can go to his uh, website, which is fourkeepsministries.com, fourkeeps, F-O-R, keepsministries.com. Be right back. Welcome back to the show. So glad to have Dr. Bob Moeller with me today and Dr. Peter Kapsner joining in on the discussion we're having on marriage. I want to give you a little marriage minute from Bob's fourkeepsministries.com website. It says, how can you live a life together with no regrets? Nothing is so tragic as a life or marriage poorly lived. It doesn't have to end that way. The two of you today can begin living a life that leaves no regrets. How? Well, keep short accounts with each other. Say loving things to each other. Make time for your kids. Give more time. Give more than you take. Express real and sincere appreciation for the other person each and every day. Keep all your promises. Most of all, make Christ the center of your marriage. Do this, and you'll be able to say, I have finished the race with nothing to regret. Gentlemen, welcome back. Thanks, Bell. It's beautiful. Yeah, nicely said. Um, So let's go back to uh, vows. I I know, Peter, you had something you... uh, place you wanted to take it, a uh, direction on vows. Yeah, I think, uh, Bob, I'd love to talk about sort of the hopefulness of the vows and, and the beauty and wonder that that is within them. But before the break, we were talking a bit about living together and, and why young people often feel the need to do that. You referenced the idea that for children that have grown up in a divorce situation, it's often very painful for them. And I think we can talk about some of the hope and healing that comes from that too. But I think there's this understandable impulse to say, I don't necessarily want to go through the pain of all of that myself or if we have kids. So why why don't we see if we enjoy one another first as kind of a test run before we get married? That's kind of an understandable impulse, right? But it, but we're we're maybe missing some things. Right. No, I understand. You know, there was there's an old joke and it's it's not all that um it's it's tragically humorous. But um you know, what is the leading cause of divorce? Well, the answer is marriage. You know, <laughs> you can't be divorced if you weren't married. And I do think that that has been in the thinking of this uh, new generation. You know, in 1970 or thereabouts, they passed um, these no-fault divorce laws. In the past, you had to prove that there was a compelling reason to end the home or end end the, the marriage. And there had, you know, they had mental cruelty, irreconcilable differences, uh, infidelity, unrepentant, all those things. Um, to, in the 1970s, they said that's far too costly and that puts people through too much pain having to prove that and go through it. Let's just say it's nobody's fault. And you can get a divorce for virtually any reason you want and we'll make it, we'll streamline it, uh, we'll fast track it. You, everybody will save money, and in the end result will be people can move on with their lives and discover someone more compatible. It all seemed like a good idea on paper. Unfortunately, what they forgot about, and Peter, I think you'd probably agree with this, is its impact on children. 
that uh, divorce is one of the most devastating emotional experiences, I might use even the word traumatic, that a child can ever experience. Yeah, I, I think, Bob, and, and being mindful of the fact that there's a number of people that are listening, even as we speak, that that have been people that have had to walk through divorce themselves, and they know that pain as well. And and that doesn't take away from uh, what you just described, that when young people crack open in my classroom about what that experience is like when maybe they were eight or nine or 10 or 11 years old, and and one of the parents um, will come in and say that your mom and I or your dad and I are no longer going to live together it, it really, I, I wonder if we've underestimated that impact. And again, I know that the three of us can talk about the fact that the cross and the empty tomb can redeem all things for everybody involved, and it, and it genuinely can. But uh, but that doesn't take away from that moment for young people that maybe we don't really know how painful it is for that really open and vulnerable heart to experience that and, and how then they carry that into their relationships to come. It, it's part of why divorce ends up um, continue and to perpetrate itself in, in families because people are coming so wounded to the table from it. Yes, and I understand there are innocent parties to a divorce in those listening today that didn't want it, uh, whose spouse was unfaithful or for other reasons had to seek one. I, I, I fully have compassion for that. In some cases, it, it, it was unavoidable. I understand that. But I think in far too many cases, it was more of a choice than than you know, no, no, no option other than this. And in those cases, um, children um, suffer the um, suffer a, a huge identity crisis, and the very security that has has been part of their identity has been undermined. You know, I sometimes say, imagine if you were to wake up tomorrow morning, and through some series of events you couldn't have foreseen. Uh, Minnesota is no longer a state or Illinois or any other. It's just gone. And you're not sure you're still living in the same place, but its name is gone. Its identity is gone. And, and now who are you? And, and children suffer this identity, the, the loss of their security. Um, in, in many cases, uh, as, you're, as you just said, when they get to adulthood, um, a, a divorce becomes an option for solving your problems. And I think just the trauma, just the hurt of that, the fact that I don't care if you're, you're 45 when your parents divorce or 14, it is going to shake you to your core in most instances and, and leave a wound. Seeking to avoid doing that to another generation is one of the reasons why marriage is being rejected today. Mm -hmm. But, of course, if, if you look at the reasoning behind that, just because you don't, because you're not married, doesn't mean that your two parents aren't going to split up, and it doesn't mean that you won't have to go through that sense of abandonment and that that sense of loss. And I don't know, Peter, if you've seen much about this, but I'm not sure if the if the impact of live, of children being raised in a home where they're they are not married, which is increasingly becoming common where people will be together 10 years and have two, three children, or they'll buy a house and they'll uh, go into business, but they never marry. The impact on that of a child in terms of their emotional security and well-being, I think, is yet to really be seen. Dr. Bob Moeller is my guest, and Peter Kapsner has joined me as well. As Peter is a professor who teaches uh, students who ask a lot of questions about marriage and family. And Bob, um, you know, when you 
when you add this into the equation today, that roughly what thirty percent of young adults they're identifying as secular. They 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 have no faith. They have no uh, spiritual guide that's instructing their lives. Is there any surprise that we're seeing more problems, more issues? No, I I think not at all. Because once you adopt a secular viewpoint, which is God is not part of the equation, what then is your standard of right or wrong? What what is just or unjust? What is kind or what is lawful? What is unlawful? Now it becomes simply whatever the majority thinks, um, whatever most people assume is right or wrong, is becomes rather than God's you know enduring truth, and with that is going to come you know a whole host of problems with it when you don't have an objective standard uh, to measure people's behavior. It's which group is the loudest, who's the most demanding, who's the most aggressive who is the most politically savvy, you know, that is then eventually, you know, how your society is ordered. Um, they, they did a, it, this, it's a famous study back in the 1920s or 30s, a sociologist studied 80 or 85 civilizations that had uh, prospered, grown, flourished, uh, reached sort of a plateau point, and then went into decline. And out of those dozens of cultures, he came up with the idea or with the, with the conclusion that it was when a society abandoned their values about sexuality and marriage, when they took the guardrails away, whenever they removed that and it became pretty much whatever anyone wanted to do and whatever people doing what was right in their own eyes, more or less, that it was only two or three generations till that civilization suffered a, a, a major decline or collapse. Mm-hmm. He, he defined a generation as 30 years, so about mm-hmm. 90 years from when it starts to, to when it may not end so well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Bob, it's, it's uh, interesting doing a little um, deconstruction of what's gone on uh, the last 20 years, 30 years or so. I also want to, after the break, uh, talk about hope and how we would look for uh, a healthy generation that's ahead when they think of marriage, uh, how they would, uh, but what I want to do is be encouraged going forward. And I know I want to continue to uh, discuss this some more. Also, I'd be open to taking some questions. If you have something about marriage, you can certainly ask uh, the question at 877-933-2484. Dr. Bob Moeller is my guest. You can go to his website, which is fourkeepsministries.com. F-O-R-KeepsMinistries.com. He's written a book with his wife, Cheryl, called Six Hearts of Intimacy, Enjoying Deeper Love and Passion in Marriage. We'll take a little break, and we'll be right back with lots more. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. Yeah. What's for 
We're talking about marriage today with uh, Dr. Bob Moeller. He has written a book with his wife, Cheryl, called The Six Hearts of Intimacy, Enjoy, Enjoy Deeper Love and Passion in Marriage. And Dr. Peter Capture has joined us as well as he teaches young kids today. And uh, here's all kinds of questions. I thought, great for these two to be together having discussions. Let me ask a question. Um, I recently read uh, that if a couple marries when they are younger without living together, first, they have a better chance of a long-term marriage than those who marry later and live together first. Why is that? Peter, you want to take a stab at that? (laughs) Well, I I think it it goes into what is the hopeful message related to marriage is... um, Marriage is meant to be something that is you're, you're participating in something bigger than yourself. And Bob, I know you talk a lot about um, the self-absorbed reasons why people get into relationships. And again, I, I understand that people are so crying out for intimacy. They feel isolated. They want to be seen and known. And and in the absence of community and, and places where we are able to cultivate uh, authentic, ongoing friendships, we then look towards another person to try to fill those needs. But I think people that get married at a young age also have alongside of that, and they don't live together in it, they sense they're, they're part of something bigger. Uh, I know that when Hallie and I got married at a young age, we were, we were counseled um, that our lives together were going to be something different than just our lives on our own. And there was an old uh, line from the song, How Beautiful, from Twyla Paris, where there's the, one of the lines in the song really hit us hard while we were in the ceremony process. And it says, how beautiful are the feet that bring the sound of good news and the love of the king. And w- because the two of us committed to something bigger than just ourselves and our own companionship and our own love, it seems somehow easier to do that at a younger age. And especially when you aren't deciding for yourself through testing each other out if you should get married. So I think there, it's all in there, Bob, that you're getting married sometimes for different reasons when you're not living together and you're also a bit younger. And, you know, the history of our nation and of, you know, Western civilization, at least, has been that people did marry younger. Life spans were shorter uh, for, for other reasons, but um, marriage uh, was more than just, you know, I'm in love, more than I just, you know, fulfillment. There was a sense that we can, we can do life together better than we can do it apart. And yes, we want to be part of something bigger than ourselves. And the expectations people brought to marriage, I think we're different. And, you know, Bill, we're talking about how can we turn this around? And I think, you know, there's several hopeful things that we can do. One is I think the church needs to once again preach, celebrate, lift up, magnify the institution of marriage. It's beauty, it's genius, it's joys, you know, and it's challenges. I remember as a kid uh, growing up in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area that when my parents got invited to a a wedding, they invited the whole family. And I went to several hot, you know, sultry August weddings, you know, in unair-conditioned buildings and whatever. But as I grew up, I saw weddings over and over and over again. And I think one of the things that's happened in our culture today is that we shield children from weddings. Apart from, you know, maybe being a flower girl or a ring bearer, you know, it's too expensive. It's $80 a plate. You leave your kids home. You know, we're just inviting you. Mm -hmm. And we don't want noise. and We don't want confusion at the reception. And leave the kids. As a result, 
I've talked to people who virtually have never seen a wedding except on television, you know, and I think the church needs to, um, you know, testimony time. <laughs> what about, you know, we celebrate sports figures and former dr- figures and former drug addicts and everybody else gets to tell their story. What about a couple that's been married 60 years? What about having them some Sunday morning tell their story? Mm. You know, what they went through, the hardships they faced, how God was faithful to them, what it's meant to have a lifelong partner. I think we need to start celebrating that in the lives of people and lifting that up in front of our young people and and saying that's possible. That can be done. Um, Cheryl and I are working on this June will be 43 years you know, that we've been married. And sometimes when we share that at a marriage conference, almost inevitably we get applause, you know, and we think, I often think, well, what are you applauding? You know, she put up with me for 43 years. Maybe she does deserve applause uh, for, for living with me that long. But actually um, what there, I think, is behind it often is a sense of surprise. You mean you've, you've, you've made it that long? You, you, you mean... It, one of my uh, one of my daughters, when she got, uh, I had my two youngest get married this this last year, and my youngest one um, married into um, a family, and someone asked her the question, "Are your parent, do your parents like each other?" She said, "Well, I, I think they do. <laughs> you know, uh, they they seem to be besties." And uh, she said, "Really? They, they they like each other, and they've been married." Yeah, she said they even bought a trailer to go camping together. Oh, come on. So, you know, I think there's, uh, I think we need to talk about it, celebrate it, lift up, let people tell their stories, and, um, and invite children to weddings. Um, let them see it, even if it is $80 a plate. Um, Cheryl and I got married, and our reception was in the church basement, and I think we paid the the caterers from the church, less than $1,000. But yet we feel we didn't really miss much um, because what we were committing to was not getting married, but being married. Mm. And there's a difference. I don't know, Peter, your thoughts. Yeah, I I think, as you were talking, Bob, I was thinking about how many young people um, that I know feel in danger of being relegated to the junior varsity somehow if they stay single for a lifetime and they never get married. And so there's all kinds of pressure to get married for all kinds of wrong reasons. But um, when you describe what you do, and, and I think we're supposed to live in relationships. Churches are supposed to be places where people are living with community, in community with one another as part of a bigger story. And that's single and married people together. And they all have uh, different roles, different capacities, abilities. And, and I think what you said about marriage being the place where it's a stable place to raise children is is one of the, the key parts, but it's not better or worse than other parts. And I think we could more readily celebrate marriage in the rightly ordered way if we also were living in community together as part of a bigger story that was holding us all together, where single people are every bit part of the journey together and not feeling left out and maybe feeling to, to get pressure, you know, pressure to get married for all the wrong reasons. Yeah, I agree with you that as well. Cheryl and I have led an older adult single ministry for about 13 years now. We meet monthly. And um, what we discovered was how many adult singles don't feel there's a place for them in the church to fit in, particularly older singles can wrestle with that. And we've 
spent many years trying to teach them, well, no, you have every, every as much value. It's so important. Your giftedness be utilized in the body of Christ and that um, the way God has equipped you is all for our larger good. And um, we have really, really benefited from those precious relationships, uh, particularly among older singles who can, can struggle with where they fit into the church. Um, I think another way to, to come at, at this is to, um, well, you can point to the actual benefits of being married and sharing those more often. You live longer, um, often healthier, often, you know, struggle with fewer issues uh, as a result, and that marriage can be good for you. And marriage can be one of those things that uh, I think particularly for men, um, you know, the human nature, fallen human nature, I'm talking about apart from Christ and our fallen human nature, uh, males will often seek sexual fulfillment outside of marriage just for its own sake. And fallen human nature among females, again, I'm talking about apart from Christ, will often use their sexuality to attract males. And it's, it's part of the price they feel they need to pay in order to get attention or, or perhaps even gain a commitment. And we need to help uh, people see that, no, within the redeemed community of Christ, that living a life of purity, living a life of celibacy until you are, are married will not um, cost you the chance to meet somebody. Uh, that you'd want to spend your life with, but may very well increase the likelihood that you will. Um, I think also it's very important, and this is what our ministry is, uh, for better, for worse, for keeps, places a great deal of emphasis on, is that if you have been wounded in your family, there is healing. Uh, Jesus can heal our wounded hearts. Isaiah 61 says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. He's anointed me to preach the good news to the poor, and to bind up the brokenhearted. And it doesn't, it doesn't matter who, who your ancestors were. We believe it. You can change your descendants. can't choose your ancestors, but you can shape your descendants. And you can start a new family tree, if you will. You can start a new tradition of uh, marriage. Uh, and it goes starting with God healing our hearts from the wounds that we may have experienced growing up in our childhood so that we can give and receive love as adults. And today, Cheryl and I are just thrilled to see so many couples doing so well in their marriages and uh, raising families and uh, reaching milestones who came from situations that were so painful and in some cases, so dysfunctional. And I think it's one of the lies of the enemy that if this is where I grew up or this is what I experienced, then I will have to live out the same. That is simply not the message of the gospel. Uh, the gospel is that we are born again. We are new creations. And God can build a very, very fulfilling and long-lasting marriage, even in, in individuals or between individuals that never saw that as children. Bob, you said something profound, and you've said it before, so it jumped uh, off the page when I heard it, and it's this, that you uh, help people learn how to give and receive love. 
I know that sounds really basic and simple, but there's something so profound about that. Well, the human heart is what God created in each of us to give and receive love. And we all have hearts. And we're all, because we're made in his image and he gives and receives love, we were designed to do the same. But two things will keep us from doing that. And they often occur in in our younger, you know, before age 18, and that is uh, sin and pain. Um, Sin is the choices we shouldn't make. Pain is the choices other people have made that impact us. And if we don't resolve, and the sin needs to be forgiven when our pain leads us into sinfulness, for example, but pain is not a sin, so it can't be confessed and repented of. It's just pain. And Jesus needs to heal that. And he's come to heal the brokenhearted. He's close to those who are crushed in spirit, the psalmist says. Um, Ezekiel 36 says he can take our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. And when we're able to give and receive love, we're now capable of intimacy. We're, we're now capable of understanding some of the mystery of the two becoming one. And so we have this in our ministry, this, uh, this, this taxonomy or this, this paradigm, if you will. If you want, if you heal two hearts, um, you restore a marriage. If you restore a marriage, you save a family. If you save a family, you strengthen a church. You strengthen a church, you impact a community. If you impact a community, you eventually transform a culture. And so it really does go back all the way to the human heart. Matthew 19, Jesus said, Moses permitted you to divorce because your hearts were hard. They had been damaged. Um, But it was not this way from the beginning. I really do believe, and it's one of my convictions that gets us up every Monday morning, is that God can restore our factory settings to our hearts. Mm -hmm. And when he does that, we have the potential of a really satisfying marriage. Mm -hmm. Dr. Bob Moeller is my guest. His book is The Six Hearts of Intimacy, Enjoy Deeper Love and Passion in Marriage. His website is 4FORKeepsMinistries.com. We'll be right back in just a minute. I'm back with Dr. Bob Moeller and Dr. Peter Kapsner. We're talking about marriage today. And many have gone through the pain of marriage that didn't work out. Peter, you had a question for Bob. Yeah, Bob, I wonder if you can speak to a bit about how to walk in healing and and recovery from the tragedy of divorce and, and just how that might actually be a helpful and hopeful thing for the next generation to want to consider marriage. I just, I, the divorce rate went from about 6% to nearly 55% in the 1970s. It all, it all happened so quickly. And I remember that the church understandably didn't really have much of a response at that time because it did just happen so fast and churches didn't know what to do. And, and I think left a lot of lives shattered because there wasn't a lot of guidance and wisdom, but we're a generation or so into it. And maybe what have you seen where people have been able to walk towards some measure of healing, knowing that we all have to carry pain in this life until our tears are wiped away on the other side. But but there is some healing for this that can really be authentic and hopeful for families and young people moving forward. There is. And I, I think the church 
um, needs to, well, when I was going through school, um, they taught me a lot, you know, in Bible college, seminary, and, and whatever, how to deal with sin. Um, you, you confess it, you repent, and, you know, whatever. But they didn't tell me how to deal with pain. Nobody really explained to me when you have a couple sitting in front of you and their pain is not directly the result of their sin. It might be someone else's sin. Uh, how do you help them? And no one had really unpacked that for me. Um, excuse me. And uh, having been uh, involved in a ministry that specifically um, was, was raised up to help deal with pain in people's life and heal hearts, I think now I see Scripture in, in a more complete way. And that is, uh, first of all, um, the, the church needs to provide places, whether it be in a youth ministry or young adult ministry or small groups, where people can share their pain, where people can talk about what it is they have been through in, in a loving and safe environment. And more importantly, there is someone to care about that, someone that can just uh, look them in the eye and say, I am so sorry this happened to you as an eight-year-old or a, a junior high student or whatever. Um, I'm so sorry that you went through that. And I want you to know I, if I had been there, I would have tried to stop it or I would have tried to protect you. But I just want you to know I care about you. And uh, I care about the pain you, you, you've experienced in this life, and specifically, as, as you know, their story. Do you know, just somebody looking you in the eye and saying that, hearing your story and saying, I, I am so sorry this happened to you, this shouldn't happen to a little boy or a girl, or it shouldn't happen to a student or whatever. And I just want you to know I, I care about that pain. And I'd like to be one of the people in your life that might replace what you didn't receive. Um, one of the sheets we hand out to couples is what, what I didn't receive as a child. We have 24 items that a child needs in order to feel loved and in a healthy environment. And we have people circle the things they didn't get. And then we have spouses commit to trying to provide what's missing or what the piece that wasn't there. And in, if we would start that kind of early ministry to people from broken and hurting situations, it could make such a tremendous difference. Mm. It, it, it could lower their, their pain threshold by 50% just for people to know their pain. Now, it has to be a safe environment. It has to be a mature person, a godly trust. Just all those things have to be there. But why can't the church provide that? Yeah, and, and I think, Bob, too, for the people that um, were divorced themselves, again, when, when we didn't know necessarily as an institution, institutional church how to help in that they were sort of left to their own devices. And, and I think I just remember the, the horrors of the whispers and the gossip and the things that were going around in the church in the 70s, 80s, and 90s when people were getting divorced. And, and I think many people felt like they had a scarlet letter D that was permanently Im implanted on their forehead and, and there would never be any hope for them again. But that just simply isn't the way of the cross. That it, If the divorce somehow is resistant to the reconciling power of the cross and the empty tomb, then, then Jesus's work wasn't complete. And, and I think there needs to be hope and help for the people that, that walk through it. And, so, and maybe even the people that were most responsible for it, there still is hope and grace in those situations. Oh, I, I agree with you. 
and and certainly providing not just for the children of divorce but the people who've been through it as well uh, providing this safe place in order for them to be able to tell their story and for people to care i think the second thing we found that has been so effective is to bring our pain to jesus in prayer and to actually come alongside someone and and pray with them about the wounds that they have received in life and maybe they were responsible for wounding others and the forgiveness that they can know and the steps to reconciliation that uh, are possible you know, we, we teach based on Gary Chapman's book, The Five Languages of an Apology, that if we're willing to take responsibility, show remorse, repent, make restitution, and make the request of an apology, uh, tremendous reconciliation can take place where before there was only alienation. And, um, yeah, you know, certainly, Peter, you're right that the scarlet D, that elevating that above some other sin is, is simply wrong you know, to do, and that it is by, you know, it is by uh, grace and faith alone that any of us are able to stand before Christ and uh, be declared not guilty. It's not of our works, and it's not of what we did do or didn't do. And so I think there needs to be a welcoming, a loving, and acceptance um, in showing grace to individuals. And at the same time, telling them, you know, you there. You, you can be healed in your heart. You don't have to carry this wound your whole life or this mistake or whatever that you now regret. You know, Scripture says that uh, godly sorrow leads to uh, salvation, which leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow leads to death. And I think a lot of people are living with worldly sorrow that is so hopeless and so soul-crushing when what God wants is, is godly sorrow, which is a magnet that draws us to the Savior. Worldly sorrow is a baseball bat that beats us to death. But godly sorrow is a magnet that draws us to the heart of God. And um, I, I do believe that there is healing and hope for that as well. And as people begin to experience restoration, Cheryl and I have seen this, particularly in our older single groups, many of them, not many, several, actually do end up getting married and do form uh, a lasting bond with somebody, and not everybody should or could or wants to, but those who do, we've seen that happen. And uh, it's miraculous. It's a real, um, it's a real demonstration of the grace of God. Mm-hmm. Bob, we just have a couple of minutes left. Uh, I'm wondering what thoughts you might have for people to do to be protecting these sacred marriages. Well, that's a good question, too, and I'll, I'll give Peter a chance, too. My 30-second answer to that is you need to build hedges mm. into your And hedges are those agreed-upon boundaries that um, you voluntarily not agree not to transgress. And uh, Cheryl and I have set up some boundaries that we believe protect our marriage rather than confine us. They free us. And some of those boundaries, I, I, I do not counsel or, or meet with a woman alone. I always have someone else there with me. I don't have lunch uh, with a woman alone. Some of the, the Billy Graham uh, uh, covenant of the Modesto, I, I still find it to be awfully good in terms of uh, guarding one's marriage. Peter, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I tend to counsel people that whatever you do, don't mess around with the vows in, in any sort of flippant way or, or any sort of serious way that 
in the heat of arguments and the heat of difficulty that's going to happen throughout the course of a lifetime to even say something uh, as throwaway comment as, gosh, I don't know if this is worth it or something on those lines. Those vows are so beautiful and so sacred. And, and I'm such a sap in, in all the weddings that have officiated over the years. There, there is this holiness when two people say, I will never leave you nor forsake you in front of God and others. You, you really can feel God wind them together into, into the oneness that they're about to become. And that's so lovely and so fun. And it's part of why we celebrate the way we do and, and, and have the, the post vows, um, just dances and, and laughter and fun and toasts and everything that we do, we should have those things. And so, uh, certainly you're going to wrestle through relationships for the course of a lifetime, but just let those vows stay sacred and, and don't mess with them on any level. Yeah. Usually I give the guest the last word, uh, but Peter, that was lovely. And Bob, I'm sorry to say we're out of time. I understand. It was a great word. Yeah, it was really a wonderful hour. Thank you so much for uh, spending it with us today. Dr. Bob Moeller has been my guest. His ministry is forkeepsministries.com. That's F-O-R, keepsministries.com. And his book that he wrote with his wife, Cheryl, is called The Six Hearts of Intimacy, Enjoy Deeper Love and Passion in Marriage. That's all the show we have for today. I have loved being with you. I'm so glad we were able to spend today and I'm looking forward to tomorrow, which is two twenty-two twenty-two. It's gonna be a big day. I can't wait. Have a great night, everyone. See you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at myfaithradio.com.